Thank you, Pastor Todd. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you, and thanks to those of you who are watching online, vulnerable during COVID. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, anybody with kids that would like to take them to Gospel Project, so four-year-olds up through fifth grade, please feel free to head out back, and that is all set up for you. And we're looking forward to what God will use there to help us all continue to learn and grow. Uh, those of you who are staying here in the room will be in Acts chapter 25 today. So if you would turn there in your Bibles with me, that'd be great. And if you got one of the blue Bibles from the back, we are on page 544 uh, in those Bibles. Many will uh, be making decisions this week about Thanksgiving and whether to travel, how many people to see, all those complicated things this year. Know of our prayers uh, for you in that, that the Lord would give you wisdom. And grateful this morning that we can look at uh, what God would say to us in His Word. Now, this morning, we hit uh, Paul's fifth and final trial uh, recording, recorded in the book of Acts. Now, uh, let's be honest. If you've heard the other four sermons on the other four trials, did you just groan a little bit inside? I mean, like, another one? A fifth trial? Uh, I get that. I think it's reasonable to ask, why would God put so much emphasis on this section of Paul's life? Or put that a different way, why did Luke, who wrote Acts, give us so many details on trial after trial after trial? There are many reasons, but let me just draw attention to two of them as we get started together this morning. Each one of these trials sheds further light on the gospel. And so, if the gospel is the most glorious truth that there is, and it is, then as we look at what God has done for us in Christ through different people's experiences, then we'll come to know more and more about what God has done for us. So I think that's one reason why it's here so often in so many different ways through these trials. And a second reason is probably it's here because it helps us to understand through another angle how we can share the gospel with others. Because each one of these trials, Paul appears before someone else and is thereby uh, equipping us to better understand how to share the gospel with others. Now this final trial recorded in Acts took place uh, before someone named Herod Agrippa II. If you look down at verse 13 in 20, chapter 25, you'll see him named simply as Agrippa. Herod Agrippa II ended up being the final king in the Herodian dynasty. Let me tell you a little bit about his family. Uh, some of us will be getting together with extended family this week. Think about uh, Agrippa's uh, extended family. Uh, Agrippa was the great-great-grandson of Herod the Great, the infamous builder who had been so suspicious when Jesus was born that he tried to kill him by killing all male Jewish babies who were born around this time. Agrippa's father was the leader who arrested the Apostle Paul and had the Apostle James killed. And Agrippa's uncle, Philip, is the guy who had a drunken stupor. And in that drunken stupor, he called his, his daughter in to do a lewd dance for him and he pledged to kill John the Baptist as a result of that. So if you think your family's messed up, this one is even more so. 
The Herodian dynasty was full of wicked men who used their governing authority in rather cruel ways. Now the Agrippa of Acts 25 and 26, at least by the standards of his extended family, seems like he's a rather tolerant guy. He's pretty tame. He's not known to have given himself over to being a violent, insecure ruler. However, he was far from an example that you would want your kids to emulate. You'll see in verse 13 that his uh, companion was someone named Bernice. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. And there's ample historical evidence indicating that not only was she his sister, she was also his lover. Bernice had been married to her uncle. Yes, you heard that right. Her uncle. And then she left her uncle to go be with her brother. We certainly struggle with sexual sin today. And it seems as though the broader culture has gone absolutely bonkers. But there's nothing new under the sun. Sinners have always been deviant when it comes to what we do with our bodies. Sinners sin. And sinners need a rescuer who will help us break free from the shackles of pleasures that promise everything but deliver nothing. Agrippa was all enslaved to sexual sin and needed a savior. Today we'll discover if he, in fact, chose to follow Jesus. The big question, though, here is whether Agrippa would treat Paul the way his family likely would have, or whether he would have more poise and even advocate for Paul based on what he saw and heard. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll, you'll remember that Paul had made an appeal to Caesar. And this was his uh, sort of get out of Caesarea free card in that if he appealed to Caesar, then he'd have to be taken to Rome. So as a Roman citizen, he had the right to say he wanted his case to be heard at what we would think of as the Supreme Court. And he had exercised that right. And so the question you may be wondering is if Festus had already agreed to send him to Rome, then why is he still in Caesarea? And why is he facing another trial there? Well, it's because Festus couldn't find anything to charge Paul with. If he was going to send him all the way to Rome to meet the emperor, he needed to have some kind of formal charge against him, but he couldn't find any because Paul wasn't guilty of anything. Now, with that as the background, then we come to the trial. He was appearing before the king, King Agrippa, in hopes that Agrippa would come up with something to charge him with. We see some of this explained in verse 23. Would you look there with me? On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he has done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definitive to write to my Lord about him. 
Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. No duh. God put the Apostle Paul in many unusual situations, but perhaps none is as striking as this one. This trial in this introductory paragraph we've just read is something of a who's who of all the powerful people in the city of Caesarea. Agrippa wanted to make sure to display himself and his lover sister in all their glory. If you look at verse 23, you'll see what's an unusual word for the Bible, the word pomp. The Greek word for pomp is the word phantasia. Does that sound familiar? That is the the root word from which we get the word fantasy. King Agrippa flaunted his opulent attire, his military might, his great fanfare. The text is telling us to live like Agrippa and Benice was to live something of a fantasy. This packed theater was full. Everyone was decked out. All the selfie sticks were out. They came for the show. This trial with Paul was the moment to be seen and heard. And amidst all that fame and flair and fanfare and riches, the Apostle Paul was brought out. Now, interestingly, we know exactly where this would occur. It's somewhere that's still in existence today. Here's a picture of it. This is the theater in Caesarea. This is where Paul would have been brought out. If you look closely, maybe you can imagine him there. The theater was packed. It was packed with everyone who was anybody. And then we, little Paul, came out. Amidst all that military might and show of force and all that pomp, the prisoner was brought in. Listen carefully, you can hear his chains. He was shackled. He's in ratty old prisoner clothes. Who knows how long it had been since he'd bathed. The whole scene was set to intimidate the prisoner and to elicit praise for the king. Bernice and Agrippa and the prominent guests were all there for show. And they all had everything. And yet Paul had nothing. He had nothing but his Lord. Beloved, perhaps you've been called on to give an account of your faith. Perhaps you've faced a situation in which it seemed like everybody else had a show of strength and intelligence and power and wealth. Except for you. Maybe a teacher, a coach, a spouse, a boss. If you've ever felt the condescending stare of those possessing more worldly wealth and power than you, while you were just one wee little person with a wee little faith, then this passage is is here this morning in order to give you great encouragement. And if you haven't faced a situation like that, know that if you don't hide your faith, you will face situations 
like that in the future. When Agrippa called on Paul to speak, we'll read what he said in just a moment. But when he called on Paul to speak, Paul was fueled by the Spirit and therefore he came out with a tremendous show of spiritual strength. There was power in weakness. And Christian, the same thing is available to you. The power that Paul displayed in this passage is the same power that's yours because the Holy Spirit fills you. In just a moment, we'll read starting in verse 2 and we'll find that Agrippa motioned for Paul to give his defense. And then as Paul spoke, he spoke not so much in such a way that he was trying to make his case to get out of prison. No, he, he spoke in such a way that he wanted it to be clear who God is, what God has done, what's available in the gospel. This is one of Paul's most important speeches in all the Bible. And the boldness he displayed, the optimism present, even after he'd been locked up for over two years, is tremendously powerful. The rest of the gathering this morning will essentially look at what he said. And what he said breaks down nicely into to three separate parts. If you're already a Christian, I would encourage you to, to listen to these in such a way that you become better equipped to tell your own story of what God has done for you. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I, I pray that as you hear Paul's story, you would be invited and encouraged to turn to God on your own. Paul's going to talk first about his former life, who he was before Jesus in verses 2 through 11. Then he's going to tell us about his conversion and his call, how he became a Christian and an apostle in verses 12 to 18. And then finally, he's going to display or serve as an example of a bold witness in verses 19 to 23. And we'll study this today in order that the Christians in the room would feel encouraged in your faith and be equipped to share your own story and that the non-Christians would be invited to come to know him. So look with me first, if you would, at who Paul was, his former life, starting in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Whenever a, a preacher says, listen patiently, you know he's got a lot to say. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. 
I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It has been said that the whole Christian religion pivots on whether Jesus Christ is alive or dead. If Jesus is dead, then the Christian faith is worthless. You should have slept in today. And it makes no sense to follow Christianity at all. But if Jesus is alive, then every single aspect of life is changed by that fact. Paul is saying here in the opening part of his testimony, his own story of how he became a Christian, that he believed Jesus was dead. The way Paul asserted the resurrection at his trial was to give an account of how he came to see that Jesus is alive. This started with with describing what he was like before he became a Christian. Paul's saying in these verses that he was a faithful Jew. He's, He's giving his resume that he was an impeccable Jew. He believed his Old Testament through and through. He believed Jesus was a fraud. And so his objective, as Christianity began to spread, was to stomp it out. He hated Christians. He was convinced Jesus was a sham and anyone who followed him must recant or die. Paul did not view Christianity as one of a myriad of options, but as something that must go. Anyone who taught that Jesus is God and man, anyone who claimed Jesus rose from the dead, anyone who asserted that Jesus is the promised Messiah, again, they must recant or they must be put to death. All of this made Paul the least likely person on the planet to ever become a Christian. And yet that is what happened. He tells us how in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand to your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is one of several places in the New Testament where Paul recounts his conversion to Christianity. It's the third time in Acts that this takes place, but this account gives us the most detail. Every person's encounter with the truthfulness of the gospel and with the reality that Jesus is alive is unique. If we could somehow go around the room to every Christian and say, how did you come to trust Jesus today? Each story would have its own distinctive flavor 
God comes personally and individually to each person that they might hear and receive the Lord. Paul's recounting his case not to say this is exactly what must happen to you in terms of its particulars, but to share what happened in his own experience. And Paul's experience was one that was physically dramatic. If yours, brother or sister, wasn't, that doesn't mean it was any less spiritually dramatic. But I'd like to speak very specifically to the non-Christians in the room and online and ask you if you would in particular lean in with me and consider exactly what Paul is saying must happen if someone would come to trust Jesus Christ. As he recounted his conversion and his call, he articulated three things in, that, in these verses that he's saying must happen to everyone. He said you've got to see if you would become a Christian. You've got to turn if you would become a Christian. And you've got to receive if you would become a Christian. Now to those in the room who are already believers, you've had that experience. And in having that experience, you've been equipped with the gospel in a personal way that you can now share that with others. And what is it that you would be calling on others to do? Well, you'd be calling on them to see, to turn, and to receive. Here is Paul's invitation. First, he says you must see. Now, prior to that fateful day, Paul understood the message of Christianity. It's not like he'd never heard of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. He knew what Jesus claimed to have done. He knew what Jesus was now saying he was doing through his disciples. And yet Paul rejected it. He refused to believe. But everything changed. Everything changed that day for Paul. It changed because in his case, especially because God had chosen Paul to become an apostle. And one of the criterion to be an apostle in the New Testament was that you had to have seen Jesus resurrected. That day, Jesus appeared physically to Paul. While Paul was commuting from one town to the next for purposes of persecution, Jesus showed up. That beautiful day, Paul temporarily lost his physical sight in order that for all eternity he would receive his spiritual sight. He came that day to understand the truthfulness of the resurrection and how Jesus identifies himself with his people. Now, I wish if we were on the like five-year plan going through Acts, um, one of the things I'd love to do is just push pause right here and talk about the implications of the fact that Jesus said to Paul that day that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. That the risen Lord, brothers and sisters, so closely identifies with us as his people that to come against us is to come against him. Think of what that means about the value of what we do when we're together and about the depth of 
commitment that God has to us and thereby we have to each other. There's so much there we could talk about. But we're, we're on the 40-week plan through Acts, not the five-year plan. So I just encourage you to think more about that and spend some time with another church member to considering the degree to which you look at your church like Jesus does or not. That day, Paul gained profound insight because he saw Jesus. And not only did God save Paul that day, the emphasis in this particular passage is not so much on his conversion and on on his becoming a Christian as it is on his calling to be an apostle. His charge was to preach Christ so that as he preached Christ, others would come to see Jesus. See, that's the principal way people are saved today. And it will be until Jesus returns. Could Jesus choose to show up physically like he did for Paul? Of course he could. But that's not normal. That's not typical. He showed up physically in Paul's day because Paul had to see the risen Lord in order to be an apostle on whom the foundation of the church would be laid. But most people who have ever come to know Jesus haven't seen him physically. They've seen him through eyes of faith, through hearing the preaching of the gospel. And that is why God called Paul. Friend, if you aren't a Christian, I would encourage you today to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Well, how, you might ask? Well, you can look to Jesus by simply reading the gospels. These are four books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are essentially their biographies about Jesus. They'll tell you about his life, what he came to do. You'll listen to him teach. You'll see his miracles. You'll be invited into a living, breathing, active relationship with God by virtue of reading his written word. That's one great way to see Jesus. Another way is to ask Christians about their own experience with Jesus. Because they'll tell you that what they read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, elements of Jesus' life and miracles, they are experiencing today. These are two great ways to come to see Jesus. That's how Paul started. He said, if you would become a Christian, Agrippa, then you've got to see who Jesus actually is. The second thing he told him is that you've got to turn. If you look in verse 18, you'll see that word used. And it's used in a rather dramatic sense. Paul says that you've got to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Beloved, to repent and return is the only responsible and appropriate response to seeing Jesus. Because when we see who Jesus is in His his holiness, His resurrection, His righteousness, His power, His beauty, then we can't help but see that we are not all of those things. And so as we see Jesus, then we see more of who we actually are. If you're not a believer, maybe your reaction to this is that 
you're not in darkness. Maybe that feels offensive to you, that Paul would say that you must turn from darkness. But friend, aren't there things in your own life that you'd love to keep hidden? Things about which you feel guilt and shame. Things you would be very happy for no one to ever know. Thoughts you've had recently that you're glad are not broadcast. Well, friends, that's what the Bible calls darkness. But maybe others would object not to the idea of darkness, you're aware of that, but rather to Paul saying you've got to turn from the power of Satan to God. Maybe you'd reject that and say, I'm not under the power of Satan. But friend, do you ever believe things that aren't true? Do you ever, for example, lust after someone else's stuff or someone else's spouse, believing if you just owned that or had her, that would truly satisfy you? The Scriptures say that those are lies and that those lies are fueled by the father of lies, Satan. If this year has exposed anything, it's exposed that we're desperately in need, that the world is in tremendous need of seeing Jesus and of seeing ourselves. Because it's when we see Jesus and see ourselves that then through eyes of faith we can receive. If you're not a Christian, let me say as clearly as I know how. Christianity is not about what you can achieve. Christianity is all about what you can receive. God is not interested in what you can do to turn your back on bad habits and start new ones. As though by some good behavior you could merit God's favor. Friends, as popular as those ideas are, they're simply not true. It's not Christianity. Christianity is not about cleaning up your act that God would be impressed. No, you see, we all have a spiritual debt that's so large we can never repay it. That's why Jesus came. He came to, to live a righteous life in order that then on the cross when he died, he could settle sinners' spiritual debt. He could die in your place. For all who turn from sin and turn to Him, your spiritual debts will be wiped out because Jesus will pay them free and clear. While Christianity inevitably results in good works, while genuine Christians' lives change and they do stop bad habits and start good ones, they do that not to get in with God, but because they already are. God, you see, is not at all interested in what you can do for Him in order to be saved. He's only interested in helping you see what He's already done for you in order that you would be saved. Jesus achieved. We received. By the sweet grace of God, Paul's defense that day was not centered on trying to get out of his physical chains. 
Instead, he was very much concerned that anyone who listened to him could come to see Jesus, turn from their sin, receive the grace of God so that they could be released from their spiritual chains. Agrippa and Festus and all the rest might appear that they had it all, but they were enslaved. They were the prisoners. Paul was free. He was free in Christ. And that's the very best freedom. As Paul preached Christ, he held out the invitation for people to be saved. And friend, if you don't know Jesus, that's what I would be aiming to do, is hold out Christ that you might see him and turn to him. And church, as you go this week, wherever you go, and you share the gospel with people as God opens opportunities, that's what you're doing. You're holding out the chance that someone would come to know Jesus Christ. What a gift that is. Amen? That God not only works in our own lives, delivering us from bondage, but now uses us that we might, by faith, encourage others to be delivered from theirs. So how did they respond? That theater full of people, and especially Agrippa and Festus and Bernice. What was their reaction that day to Paul's defense of his faith? Well, interestingly, we get a couple of answers to that. Let's look first at how Festus responded. Jump down to verse 24 with me, would you? As he, that's Paul, as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. Beloved, sometimes when we share the gospel, people respond with shock. Like they can't believe someone would actually think that. Have you had that experience? That's how Festus responded to Paul's proclamation of what God had done in his life. Festus accused Paul of being insane. Now Paul's response to Festus is extremely important. Do you see how he described his, his faith? the words that he shared about the gospel, he said that not only were they true words, but that they were rational words. For Paul, when the evidence of a resurrected Jesus was actually presented to him, then he came to see that Jesus was the fulfillment, the hero of the Old Testament, and that the only rational response to that rational Reality was to put his faith in Christ. History shows Paul's position was the true one. Because you see, all the pomp, all the fantasy, all the glory and power and wealth of Rome, where is all that today? It's gone. Agrippa and Festus are dead. As great as Rome was, it fell. That would have been unthinkable in Paul's day. As great as America is, America will one day fall. 
every nation does. But there is a king who has been on his throne all of this time and will be for all time. His name is Jesus. Festus counted on passing pleasures and power as his enduring hope. And friend, he chose poorly. In his shock, he rejected the only hope he had of a lasting, enduring hope. Paul saw Jesus, he turned from sin, and he embraced forgiveness. Festus refused all three. And in so doing, he remained enslaved. Sometimes, Christian, when you share the gospel, you'll find that you encounter people reacting the way Festus did. They think you're stupid. They think you're insane. But that's not the only response. Sometimes when we share Christ, we see on people's faces or in their eyes right now that there's not so much a shock as there is a, a, a sidestep, a, uh, an escape, a gotcha, I'm going to move on to something else. That's the way Agrippa responded. It's an avoidance of the claims of the gospel. Look at verses 26 to 29. The king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. This is Paul talking. I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for none of this has been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, it's hard to really capture this moment in our own experience, but let me just put it this way. That's not how you talk to someone who's trying to decide whether you're guilty or not. Who has the power, humanly speaking, to execute you or to set you free. And yet, as Paul looked at King Agrippa, that's not what he saw. It wasn't what he focused on. He focused on the fact that Agrippa needed Jesus. And so, he used his words not so much to beg to get out of prison, but to say to Agrippa, you see, Agrippa was Jewish. And so Agrippa knew his Old Testament. So he's pressing on Agrippa, do you believe your Old Testament? If you do, then you must see that Jesus is in fact that Messiah. Agrippa did not see that coming. That's not the way a prisoner talked to the king. He didn't put him on the spot. With the power of heaven, Paul called on Agrippa to respond to the offer of the gospel. That was super gutsy. But rather tongue-in-cheek, Agrippa caught off guard, simply says, I'm going to dodge out of this one. Sometimes when we share Christ today, we meet people who will deflect in the same way. Festus was shocked. Agrippa sidestepped. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'd simply ask you, what about you? Will you go the way of Festus? Will you simply say Christians are morons? Will you go the way of Agrippa? Will you just dodge the issue? Or will you go the way of Paul? Would you be willing to say, 
what I have thought about Jesus was wrong. The way I've lived my life hasn't borne the fruit I thought it would. I do see Jesus. If you see Him, then recognize how worthy He is and how unworthy you are. Recognize the darkness that is present within. If those two things happen, if you see Jesus as the Messiah, as the hope, as the Lord, as the King, as the Savior, and if you see yourself as someone unworthy of being in right relationship with Him, then you're almost there. All that's left is that by confessing Jesus to be Lord and turning from your sin, you would receive the gift of a right relationship with God. Friend, you may not have come this morning for that purpose, but I pray that if you believe what has been shared and you've never trusted Christ, that you would do so today. This passage is in the Bible, this fifth trial, in order that everyone who hears would not remain in shock and would not sidestep, but instead they would surrender. Our hope and prayer is that you would do so today. And if you already know Jesus Christ, then church this week, the Lord will bring opportunities for you to share the gospel. I don't know when. I don't know with whom. I don't know if the door will just be very barely cracked open or if it'll just be a double door all the way. But God will bring an occasion, we hope and pray, through which you could make a defense for your faith. Know that as you do so, the power that enabled that single prisoner to stand in that sea of people is the same power present in you. The same Spirit who helped Paul be so courageous and bold is the same Spirit that already lives within you. And so the power for witnessing isn't in a big personality, or in your great intellect. It's in the indwelling spirit. Would you make a commitment now that the next time God opens a door for you, you will not fail to go, but you'll burst through it in order that Jesus would be seen and heard and received. God's work in your own life is never designed to be a cul-de-sac. No, it's a thoroughfare. It's a highway that more and more and more and more people might hear Jesus through your own encounters with Him. May we share Him boldly like Paul. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that the promised risen Lord has revealed himself to us and has transformed us. And as so many of us know Christ. And consequently, we pray in this coming week, particularly as people, many people will be with friends and family who don't know you. We pray for courage, for boldness, 
we confess that there have been times recently where we recognized you gave us an opportunity to announce, to declare that Jesus is alive. But instead we were ashamed. God, we confess that as sin and thank you that in Christ we are forgiven. In those moments that will come, help us to see them, Lord. And would you recall in our minds even then, whether that's in a week or in a year, that the power for witnessing in that moment is already present in us because of Christ. And we pray that we would be so uh, sensitive to and aware of your leadership that we would be ready to share who we were, who we now are because of Jesus. And that we would be equipped, God, in that moment to declare in the power of the Spirit what a great God you are. Pray for my brothers and sisters in each of the coming days that you would grant them courage to feel no fear of people, to live in a reverent awe of you, and to invite friends, family, even strangers to come to the point of seeing Jesus turning from sin and receiving forgiveness. Lord, for any who are watching this online this morning or here present in the room, who have yet to trust Christ, Father, help them to see you. Help them to get a sense of the darkness within and the need for you and to turn that they might receive forgiveness. We pray for this miracle to happen even now. In Jesus' name, amen.